0: Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 45 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episode 44 before listening to this episode. And now, Voskud 1, part 2. Last week we covered the origins of Voskud and the introduction of the cosmonauts. Let's begin now with the sequence of events leading to the launch of Voskud 1. On February 4, 1964, Chief Designer Koroloff received orders to use four available Vostoks to prepare and carry out a three-man flight in 1964. On March 13th, the Military Industrial Commission produced a schedule for carrying out the three-man missions that involved shipping two boosters and two spacecraft to Baikonur in June and two more boosters and spacecrafts in July. The plan called for a launch in the first half of August. On August 3rd, the state commission for the Voskud 1 flight was set up by decree. In July, the initial plans for three unmanned test flights was reduced to only one test flight. On September 29th, the state commission met at Baikonur and received the news of problems with the telemetry system of the Voskud test vehicle. In order to fix the problem, the spacecraft had to be dismantled, and this would take six or seven days. On October 4th, the cosmonauts training for the flight of Voskud 1 arrived at Baikonur to witness the unmanned test flight of the Voskud. On October 5th, the state commission decided to launch the test flight carrying two mannequins the following day. On launch day, October 6th, the unmanned test flight of Voskud called Cosmos 47 was launched into orbit. The orbital perigee was 177 kilometers and the apogee was 413 kilometers. It flew for 24 hours just like the upcoming manned flight. The success of Cosmos 47 paved the way for Voskud 1. The Cosmos 47 capsule Was returned to Baikonur on October 8th for examination. This left only four days before the manned flight of Voskud 1. Clearly, Korlov was operating within very small margins of time. Also, it was important to get the manned flight off promptly because tracking ships in the Pacific and Indian Ocean only had supplies that would allow them to remain on station until mid-October. The plan was to launch Voskud 1 on October 10th, but on October 8th, the news arrived from ground test of the third-stage engine that it had suffered high-frequency oscillations in the combustion chamber. The engine was being tested by the Kosberg Design Bureau and had flown many times without problems. The prevailing view was that the oscillations were caused by the effects of the test stand and designer Kosberg reported this conclusion to the state commission meeting at Baikonur on October 9th. With the oscillation problem accounted for, yet another problem occurred. The telemetry transmitter in the booster malfunctioned and had to be replaced. These problems delayed the mission until October 12th. October 12th, 1964, was a quiet frosty morning. The thermometer was reading minus eight. Winds were gentle, visibility was over 20 kilometers, and it was almost a perfect day to launch. The state commission met at the launch pad 200 meters from the rocket at 0500 universal time and all officials reported that all was ready for launch. Korolov stated, quote, the rocket can be fueled and launched, end quote. Shortly before launch, members of the state commission, the launch team, doctors, consultants, designers, and newsmen had their customary send-off ceremony at the launch pad and bid the cosmonauts a fond farewell. Commander Komarov reported that the crew was ready for the flight. After more good wishes, the crew entered the elevator that took them to the top of the rocket, on the small platform leading to the ship, they stopped for a moment to look down at the waving hands and bid them a final goodbye. In front of the hatchway, the crew removed their jackets and changed their boots for suede slippers. Yegorov, the doctor, was first to take his place in the cabin because it was the farthest from the entrance. Then Feokhtistov, the scientist, and lastly, Komarov, the commander. The crew strapped in, checking their instruments and equipment. From the control center, Yuri Gagarin kept the crew informed on everything taking place on the now-deserted launching site. Finally, the command was given. Stand by. Now it would be a matter of minutes before the launch. Commands followed in quick succession. The flight recorder was switched on, and the engines started up. There was not much noise at first, but after the command main engine. The noise and vibration grew stronger, and then the final command came at 0730 universal time. Start. The crew heard the noise of the engine which was no louder than that of a jet plane. They felt minor vibrations that soon ceased. They felt the g-forces increase in waves reaching the maximum at the end of each stage. Soon the spacecraft emerged from the dense layers of atmosphere and the ballistic cap opened and sailed away. After the final stage of the launch vehicle finished, the crew felt weightlessness. They had been warned to sit quietly at this point and not to make any sudden movements and not to allow themselves to be distracted. However, they ignored all this advice, unstrapped themselves, and began looking through the portholes. Since they weren't wearing spacesuits, it was easy to unstrap and float around freely to all the portholes. It took 523 seconds to reach orbit. Around 0900 UT, the launch was announced by famous Soviet radio announcer Yuri Levitan. Here's the audio. Attention. Attention. The radio Говорит Москва. Передаём сообщение так. Сегодня октября в 10 часов минут по московскому времени Foskud 1 entered an orbit of 178 by 408 kilometers at an inclination of 64.9 degrees, just as planned. During the first orbit, the commander reported that the crew felt fine and that they were proceeding to carry out the flight plan. The engineer, Fyoktishtov, checked the apparatus and the atmosphere in the cabin. The doctor spread out his instruments and examined the other members of the crew. He recorded his observations in the ship's log, including pulse, respiration, reaction to the changeover to weightlessness, the effect of the G-forces and general impressions on the way his shipmates looked. The commander tested the manual orientation system in case the Earth-controlled automatic system failed. Everything was in fine working order. The crew was now confident that at any moment they could manually switch on the engines and make the descent and landing without help from the Earth. During the final minutes of the first orbit, as the spacecraft passed over Soviet territory, it was time to establish contact with the ground control station. Komarov switched on the transmitter and said, Don, Dawn, I am Ruby, can you hear me? The control station replied, Ruby, I am Dawn. reception is good. And Komarov gave his report. On the second orbit, the crew sent greetings to the Olympic Games as the spacecraft passed near Japan around 0920, universal time. Here's the audio. The crew was also able to observe some very interesting phenomena from space. Towards the end of the third orbit, when the spacecraft was flying over the Antarctic, the crew saw a unique phenomenon. Columns of yellow light, hundreds of kilometers tall, rising at right angles to the black horizon, towered over a layer of brightness that shrouded the Earth. It was like a multicolored layer cake. First the horizon, then the dark sky, then a layer of brightness illuminated by the moon, and above this, the yellow columns of light. Like a palisade, they fringed the entire visible horizon for about 2,000 kilometers. The crew was so entranced, they did not realize the nature of the phenomena they were observing at first. Then the engineer exclaimed, Why, it's the Aurora Australis. The Aurora Australis viewed from Earth is not so impressive. But in space, the columns of yellow light stood motionless, and through them the stars glittered. The crew was observing the golden halo of Earth. Flying over the green fields and yellow deserts of Africa, Boris Yegorov tried to identify the snow-capped peak Of Kilimanjaro. Suddenly he noted some strange reddish flares. The crew peered out the portals. Below, lightning flashed through the thick layer of moonlit clouds. It was a thunderstorm. Later, the crew encountered the fireflies, but they called them shiny particles. Of course, the crew had heard about these mysterious particles whirling around the spaceship from reports of John Glenn and other US astronauts. The luminous particles were visible only against a black sky when the Sun was shining from the side. They appeared at a distance of one half to a few meters from the ship and then gradually disappeared. Their movement was erratic. Sometimes two particles would move toward each other. The cosmonauts believed that these tiny particles came from the ship and were simply dust particles that were round everywhere, including in space. And in the sunlight, they became clearly visible. As the mission progressed, it became clear that the three-man crew of Voskhod one had several advantages over the one-man crew of the Vostoks. For example, during the Vostok flights, the cosmonauts had to spend part of their time sleeping but on Voskud 1, two members of the crew were always on duty while the third rested. Their work in space did not stop for a moment, and they were able to obtain considerably more scientific information. Alteration of work and rest ensured maximum efficiency of all the members of the crew. As another example, in the one-man capsule of the Vostok program, the cosmonaut, in observing various phenomena, could rely only on his own judgment. But, on Voskud 1, the crew could immediately exchange opinions on their observations and could thus reach a more objective assessment. Such was the case in determining the nature of the luminous particles. The first cosmonaut to go off duty was Dr. Yegorov. He slept soundly and even snored occasionally. The next to sleep was the engineer Fyaktistov. The last to go off-duty was the commander Komarov. His turn came 12 hours after the launch. The crew decided they preferred sleeping strapped in their seats rather than floating around the cabin. During the 6th and 7th orbits, more tests were conducted on the manual controls and the TV transmissions took place. TV images from Voskhod One were relayed to the West European viewers by Eurovision. Nikita Khrushchev and Anastas Mikoyan spoke to the crew at fourteen hundred UT. Here is a short audio clip. <laughs> Khrushchev told the crew that Mikoyan was standing next to him and was eager to take the telephone receiver from him. This was later interpreted as symbolic of Mikoyan's participation in the plot to oust Khrushchev. On the morning of October 13th, nearing the re-entry time, the crew made a request by radio to the state commission to extend the flight for at least one more day. They wanted to repeat the whole flight plan to check their observations. The state commission denied their request and told them that since the flight plan had been carried out in full, there was no need to continue it. The disappointed crew prepared for the descent. On the 16th orbit, the crew strapped in and the descent indicator started working. A minute later, braking engines fired correctly and on time, with a light metallic clink, The instrument section separated from the capsule. Then the capsule re-entered the atmosphere. Outside the portholes, it began to turn pink. The black sky vanished, revealing an orange-red haze. Soon the portholes were covered in fire. The doctor asked, Are we ablaze? The engineer replied, No, it's just the white-hot boundary layer. The temperature on the gas around the capsule was close to 10,000 degrees. The crew could hear the heat-resistant covering crackling, yet inside the cabin the temperature was normal. Next the crew began to feel the effects of gravity. It increased gradually until it reached about 8 G's. Then the capsule began to vibrate. This meant Voskud 1 was passing through the sound barrier in the opposite direction. Its speed would soon be subsonic. The vibrations soon ceased and the high g-force diminished. The parachute opened at the predetermined altitude and the spacecraft continued its descent toward the Earth. The crew prepared for the impact that would come when the ship touched down, but they only felt a slight bump. There were a few anomalies reported during the flight. First, the temperature in the cabin climbed from 15 to 20 degrees Celsius. And, Dr. Yegorov's pulse dropped to 46 beats per minute when he slept. And, there was no report on the shortwave radio from the spacecraft when the retro rocket fired. Instead, this information had to come from a tracking ship off the African coast. A short time later, the shortwave direction finders detected the capsule beacon as it passed over the Caucasus, and confirmation of the correct initiation of the landing sequence was received, but the beacon from an antenna in the parachute shroud lines could not be heard. This made mission controllers nervous until a pilot reported seeing an object in the air 40 kilometers east of Marievka and two parachute canopies. Finally, the same pilot reported seeing the three crew members standing outside the craft waving their hands. The spacecraft landed at 0747 Universal Time, 312 kilometers northeast of Kustane in Kakistan, and the successful conclusion of the flight was announced by Soviet media at 0900 Universal Time. Then some out of the ordinary events occurred. When the crew arrived at Kustane, there was no customary telephone call from Khrushchev. So, the crew proceeded to fly to Baikonur to give their report about the flight. After a celebratory luncheon at the launch site, Marshal Rudenko was ordered to fly to Moscow immediately. A meeting of the party's central committee was to be held the same evening the crew's celebration at Red Square was canceled and Korolov quietly left the Cosmodrome for Moscow on October 15th. It turned out that Premier Khrushchev, the chief political supporter of space stunts, had been removed from power. It has been suggested that this might have been the real reason the crew was not allowed to spend another day in space. But in any case, on October 19th, the crew finally left the launch site and flew to Moscow to be greeted by the new leader of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev. Oddly enough, a flight that had been designed to politically upstage the U.S. was upstaged itself by politics in the Soviet Union. In conclusion, Voskhod-1, the 7th manned Soviet spaceflight, achieved a number of firsts. It was the first spaceflight to carry more than one crewman into orbit, the first flight without the use of spacesuits, and the first to carry either an engineer or a physician into outer space. It also set a manned spacecraft altitude record of 336 kilometers. Since the flight occurred in 1964, before the beginning of Project Gemini's two manned flights, Voskhod 1 had a significant but temporary international impact. NASA Administrator James Webb called the flight of Vostok 1, quote, "significant space accomplishment," end quote, adding that it was, quote, "a clear indication that the Russians were continuing a large space program for the achievement of national power and prestige." And, for a brief time, the three-man Voskud flight was thought to be the Soviets' answer to Apollo, which made the U.S. seem further behind the Soviets than it really was.